Hello and welcome to Mega City Book Club, the podcast all about the galaxy's greatest comics. I'm Eamon Clark and my guest this episode, uh, a first timer, welcome to the book club, John Clark. Thank you. Glad to be here. Thank you for giving up your time, John. I'm always grateful when people get in touch by emailing mcbcpodcast at gmail.com. And we've got some interesting mid-70s comics to talk about. But first of all, let's start with your 2080 origin stories. Tell me how you started with the prog. Uh, yeah, I'm a prog warner. Uh, oh, haven't had one for a while. Yeah. Now, bought from my uh, local um, uh, village newsagent in uh, North Yorkshire. A uh, little place called Snaith, which its only uh, accolade is that it's seven miles from Ghoul, which is the hometown of British comics publisher Des Skin. Ah, right, there uh, you go. Yeah, both Des often tells his story about buying his comics from Ghoul Market and selling them back to the same vendor, and I did exactly the same thing. So, ah, right, okay. Yeah. When I first uh, saw 2000 AD, I think I must have seen it advertised in other British comics, and... Uh, probably did pick it up because of the Dan Dare connection in the first instance. Uh, I still remember thinking, you know, I should get a stack of these and put them in plastic bags and put them away somewhere. I bet this becomes a cult comic in, you know, 20, 30 years' time. And uh, so that proved to be the case. But I didn't I didn't buy the additional copies, sadly. So, <laughs> <laughs> Right. OK, and have you stuck with it all the way from Prog 1? Uh, no, I've, I've dipped in and out. I pretty much... Um, Kept going all the time that I lived at home. When I moved away to college, um, I stopped buying it regularly, um, but would still uh, keep picking it up, kind of kept in touch with it, bought some of the albums, uh, bought some of the Eagle reprints, and more latterly have kept in touch due to the 2000 AD podcast, which kind of rekindled my interest because it also features stuff about British comics. It's not exclusively 2000 AD content, which I find quite appealing. Um, so I've kind of kept in touch. I'm, I've got to say I'm much more these days of a Judge Dredd reader. There's not an awful lot in 2000 AD apart from Judge Dredd that appeals to me these days, if I'm brutally honest. OK. But are the British comics an interest as well for you? Um, yeah, I tend, uh, obviously now into my fifth decade, I tend to be a bit of a nostalgist. Um, so I right. tend to look back to the comics um, of the 60s and 70s um, and the 80s. I don't tend to keep up too much with the with the, Brit- with the current British comic scene, although what they're doing with the treasury of British comics uh, is obviously uh, fantastic, uh, bringing back a lot of memories. Not too impressed with the new specials, if I'm, if I'm honest. Um, and I thought the things like The Vigilant, I think I don't quite understand Possibly it's a sales decision. I don't quite understand why Rebellion are aping the Marvel and DC Comics format too much. I would have thought maybe try and make them more distinctive and go back to the to the British roots a little bit more. OK, well, we might get into that as we go along. You've mentioned the Treasury of British Comics. Mm-hmm. Tell us about the book you've picked to come on the book club with. OK, well, I picked the, one, the first one that they printed, which is the story of the uh, 70s tough New York cop. One-Eyed Jack. Splendid. So let's just do facts and figures. This was 2017 Treasury of British Comics paperback. Collects stories from Valiant Comic that ran from December 1975 to October 1976. And then there's a 1978 Valiant annual story at the back, I think, as well. All the stories in this collection are written by John Wagner. Art John Cooper we're going to be talking about. 
Uh, the typewriter letterer, we would no idea. Editor at the time, of course, was John Wagner himself as well. So we'll come to that. But first of all, why have you picked this book, John? Uh, well, the first thing um, I think about uh, uh, why I really wanted to do it is that Pat Mills continually talks about the British comics revolution and the three comics that he singles out are uh, Battle, Action and 2000 AD. And I would say these John Wagner edited issues of Valiant are the equal, absolutely equal of any of those three. Um, I was the absolute prime age to be reading these comics when I was a kid because they were aimed at eight to 14 year olds and I was 11, so bang in the middle. Um, and I was really blown away by one eye Jack straight away by just how contemporary it was. I mean, it really was a fresh feel. When you consider that the previous American cop in Valiant had been Zip Nolan, uh, okay. which was a strip drawn by Joe Cowhown about an American motorcycle cop. And the readers were in, you read the one or two page story and there would be a clue in it. And the, at the end, the readers were invited to spot the clue and see if they could work out the crime, the crime before Zip Nolan um, revealed it. Uh, but this obviously was a was a far, far cry from that and really reflected a lot of stuff that was on TV at the time. It was the usual Mills and Wagner technique of appropriating genres from, from other mediums. And, you know, it was just like Starsky and Hutch, the streets of San Francisco, Cannon, you know, all the uh, American cop. It really had the feel of the American cop shows on TV. Great stuff. So tell us, first of all, tell us about the title character. You've mentioned, you know, uh, he's a cop from the 70s. Tell us who is One-Eyed Jack. OK, well, One-Eyed Jack is uh, New York detective Jack McBain. Uh, we find from the opening uh, story that he's been a policeman for 10 years and he plays it by the book. And uh, for his thanks, he, he picks up a hood, who uh, gives him the warning and uh, you know, about to be arrested, and uh, for that, the HUD decides to shoot his eye out. So uh, Jack McBain is then sent off to hospital, uh, recuperating, and he's again still being the good copper, and uh, is uh, visited by his police lieutenant. And says, "Oh yeah, that's great. I know the HUD will get put away when he goes to trial. Don't worry." And when it goes to trial, the HUD is acquitted because we later learn that his boss has paid the jury off. So determined to get his revenge, McBain absolutely says, that's it, the rule book's been tossed out the window. From now on, I'm going to get my man anyway, anyhow. Uh, and then pretty much starts off on a one-man one crusade against crime in New York. Um, it's the, via, the, the, the pace of the action is quite stunning in it, as is the level of violence. And when uh, McBain finally confronts the Hood's boss, he deals with him by picking him up in a forklift truck and tossing him to his death out of a first floor window. And if that sounds like a spoiler to anybody listening, that, that, don't worry about that because uh, there's plenty more of that where the, you know where that came from in the book. So, and that's, um, that's literally page three because the first one's just three yeah. pages. They tell that story yeah. in, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and the great thing about British comics at those times, I do like, I mean, the, the fact that they packed so much into the pages. You know, the big artwork that started with 2000 AD, the five panels per page, it's all very nice, it's great to look at. But, you know, as a kid back in the 60s and 70s, you got a lot more value from your comics because they were much denser and took longer to read. 
Yeah, fantastic stuff. Let's um, let's start with John Wagner, and then I'm going to take you through a little bit of history of Valiant Comic itself. Because, I mean, obviously we're all very familiar with John's career from 2080 onwards, but he started out back in the 60s with the uh, the other sort of big British comics publisher with DC Thompson, didn't he? Yeah. And then from there he comes south to IPC. Uh, famously, he, ed- he edits girls' comics for a while, Sandy and Princess Tina, uh, he helps with the start-up of Battle, or Battle Picture Weekly, to give it its full title. And then he's handed Valiant Comic, which was uh, a struggling comic at the time, I think. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. It, it was still... It had been, I think, a top seller for IPC at one time, but it had stuck with the strips that had, that had brought those sales. So you still had things like the comedy war hero Captain Hurricane, uh, Billy Bunter, I think, was still still featured. Uh, it had more traditional fits like Mauser, and Wagner was only given enough budget to revamp a number of the strips. He couldn't revamp, didn't have the budget to revamp the entire comic, and introduced these a series of gritty stories. Uh, you know, a- action was currently just a few months away from being launched. That probably probably influenced things but you've almost got two comics in one because you've got the four or five gritty stories that Wagner brought into the comic alongside Captain Hurricane, Billy Bunter, Mauser and even as an 11 a year old kid I didn't obviously understand all the production issues behind comics at that time but I really got the sense that this was like two different publications that had been joined together. Right that's I mean that's interesting and of course just to mention, uh, if I'm right in thinking, John Wagner at this stage was 25, wasn't he, when he was handed the editorship of this comic? Yeah, I'm, I'm not too uh, not too up on his deta- on his on his personal details. I think, yeah, he was 25. I just think back to me at 25. If I'd been handed, you know, saying right, you're now the editor of this comic, um, yeah. and you've got to turn it around and save it. And of course, as yeah. you say, he looks to these sort of uh, grittier hard-nosed stories, obviously doing a sort of Mills and Wagner crib of Dirty Harry in a way. Mm. What were the other stories that he also introduced into Valiant around about the same time? Okay, well, the other ones that I I recall, um, one is Death Wish, which was the very well-worn IPC premise of a soldier that his platoon gets wiped out. He's the sole survivor and basically feels guilty and then basically spends the rest of his life embarking on a set of suicide missions to join his, uh, the rest of his comrades. And, of course, that's a, that's a well-worn uh, premise. We saw it in D-Day Dawson. Um, we also saw it, uh, what's the, uh, oh, the Coffin Sub yeah. in action. Um, and uh, there's even another one that, uh, I mean, I think they reprised it in, I think they had another strip called Death Wish on this, along similar lines in the New Eagle as well. I'm not too, not too familiar on that one. The uh, so there was also another war strip, uh, Soldier's Sharp, which I really liked. I wasn't a fan of war comics at that time, but this was about a cowardly British private uh, in the Rifle Corps, and basically he, he is a complete. He, he was nicknamed the Rat of the Rifles, and that's exactly what he is. And he will cheat, steal, thieve, um, betray anyone uh, to look after, save his own neck. And again, as an 11-year-old kid, this actually almost came over as an anti-war story. 
because the British Army in traditional British comics had always been, you know, really heroic characters. They could do no wrong. They were always up against the evil Hon. You know, this was Britain's finest hour. And Soldier Sharp was a complete uh, antithesis of this. You know, there was nothing, absolutely nothing heroic about him. I can't remember how the story ended, but I'm pretty sure he's not redeemed at the end. Oh, right. I'm, you know, I, I think he, he stays a rat right, and, right until the very end. Um, and the other one that, that strikes, that stands out to me, was Paco, another very contemporary story, um, about the story of a fighting dog in Canada. Um, he's got an evil owner who trains him for the fights. He's an Alsatian wolfhound, Alsatian dog. Um, but he is befriended by a young boy and, of course, with the boy, has a heart of gold. Now, this I find very interesting because, again, when... Pat Mills talks about the history of British comics. He'll tell you one of the things that inspired him was a story called Paddy McGinty's Goat. Yes, yeah. Which was the story of, as I recall, story of a space alien that comes to Earth, disguises itself as a goat, but is still able to talk and befriends a young boy. And Pat Mills says, how is any young kid meant to identify in the 1970s, meant to identify with that kind of premise? Well, we have another story in Valiant about an animal that befriends a young boy, but Wagner goes completely to the other end of the scale, and this creature will absolutely tear your throat out as soon as look at you. And the blood and guts in it is every bit the equal of Hookjaw and Paco. So I found that a very, very interesting uh, juxtaposition as I came to think about this all again in, in adult life. So another one of the uh, violent killer animals from 1970s British comics. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, thinking about us, you know, what kids wanted to read in the mid-70s in comics, um, would you have been... Do you think we were aware of Dirty Harry and the films that we weren't allowed to see? I wasn't aware of Dirty Harry, but certainly visually the strip has the look of the streets of San Francisco, and certainly I was staying up late to watch all the cop series on TV. And, of course, the most violent one from that time, of course, was uh, The Sweeney, yes. which uh, needed special permission, I think, as I recall, to stay up and watch that one, because that was really brutal. So although I wasn't able to get into the X-rated films, I still got this feeling, you know, this was contemporary culture. Um, and, and it's almost... Uh, we were talking... mentioned Des Skin a little bit earlier. It's almost... Wagner taking the Deskin approach because Deskin said that when he ran Halls of Horror, he was basically selling the kids horror porn because in those days, uh, Halls of Horror was, or House of Hammer as it was better known, uh, basically was a series of uh, Hammer horror films adapted into comic strip formats. And as Des points out, in those days, there was no VHS. These movies weren't being repeated on TV. There was no streaming channels. The only way you could get in as a kid to see that those films were these you had to look 18 and bluff your way into the cinema or you read the story in house of hammer yeah and so he describes it horror upon and it's almost the same thing happening here with one-eyed jack and wagner and cooper are, pr are pretty blatant about it because if you take off mcbain's eye patch and if you dye his blonde hair you've got clint eastwood looking back at you yes off the page. Yeah. You know, there's no subtlety about it. You know, they're not trying to hide this connection. So, um, uh, yes, I find that quite interesting. Some of the stories do reflect scenes from the Dirty Harry films as well. 
And I've, I have read that it was John Cooper who very much lent into the dirty, the Clint Eastwood look for the character. Yeah. Although he gives, uh, as well as his distinctive eye patch, he also has a distinctive waistcoat he wears, or a vest, I, call it, I guess the Americans would call it, um, yeah. with his suit jacket otherwise. Um, let's go back to the stories. Tell it, because it's three or four page stories, I think, throughout this, uh, this volume. I mean, yeah. you know, you've mentioned it's New York. You've mentioned it's grim and gritty police stuff. Tell us a little bit more about some of the sort of stories and the, the exploits of uh, one-eyed Jack McBain. Well, you know, McBain doesn't, uh, as we've said, doesn't doesn't care much for the um, rule book. He's got a, a regular cast around him. Uh, he's got his partner Willie Novak, who is slightly a restraining influence on him, but will get his hands dirty if he has to. Uh, the police lieutenant Capelli is another regular character as well. Um, but in terms of the of the stories, uh, you know they're so fast moving and so violent. I mean, there's one story that that stands out that that I read as well, I didn't remember it, but I remember when I read it back in the history of British in the Treasury of British Comics um, that two hoods have kidnapped a girl and are holding a hostage uh, in a beach hut. So to uh, smoke them out. Jack just sets fire to the beach up. Tells his friend Willie Novak, "You, ma- you keep your eye on the front. I'm going round the back because that's where they'll run out." Um, you know, doesn't have doesn't have much respect for for human life. Um, the other stories that I remembered, for, the two that I remembered from when I was a kid, one is a rookie policeman. Uh, that's right. There's a place at Hell's Kitchen in New York. They're shooting the cops. The gangs are shooting the cops. And the police are saying it's too dangerous, you know, to send cops into Hell's Kitchen anymore. And McBain uh, says, no, 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 you know, we can't back down to the gangs. You you send in another rookie cop tonight and I'll check he's OK. And, of course, uh, an absolute bloodbath uh, ensues from that one. And the other one that I remember is uh, the story of a boxer who is uh, a couple of hoods come round to beat him up and tell him to throw off. You know, their boss has, has got a big bet on the fight and that he has to throw it. And the reason that I remember this uh, this story is because the hoods turn up dressed in Donald Duck masks. They do, yes. And Yes. And that was a really arresting visual image because, again, as an 11-year-old kid, I realised I was reading this hyper-violent comic strip and then suddenly you've got all these cutesy Walt Disney characters running around in it and I don't want to give I hate, I hate spoilers so I don't want to give too much away um, it, it's a two-parter so the story develops it takes a it takes a twist and the story develops but let's just say that um, uh, McBain and his partner Willie Novak they respond to the crooks in kind so it's quite the first half is quite surreal and then it gets back in the second half it gets back to its uh, it gets back to its gritty roots yes he's yes he does doesn't he he's a uh... As you say, he's no nonsense, Jack McBain, is he? He's sort of like he'll use yeah. anything: forklifts, uh, yeah. cars, guns, knives, um, exactly. helicopters, anything. Yeah, and he he just loves to throw people. I was amazed at how many times he throws people out of a first floor window. Yes, I mean that is a, a recurring theme through the book. And to be honest, the, the violence in it is now so over the top. Rereading it with an adult sensibility. It actually almost at times comes over as Team America World Police. Yes. You know, it almost comes over as black comedy because it's so extreme. And interestingly, John Wagner's written an introduction for this volume, and in his first paragraph he says, 
that uh, he's now a little shocked to see how near the knuckle the stories were. The Jack went yeah. far over the line of acceptable police behaviour and should have been prosecuted on a number of occasions. Um, sh- yeah. And he says, should I have been presenting that sort of stuff to 12-year-olds? But presumably, yeah. as you say, you know, at the time, 12-year-olds, 11-year-old yourself loved it. Yeah, yeah that's what he, he says. And as he points out, it immediately went to the top of the um, uh, reader's uh, favourite story yeah. poll. Because every week in the in the in the British comics at that time, you were uh, invited. It was basically, you know, before email. It's how the editors found out which which were the popular strips. You, you were invited to write in a letter. There was a coupon in the comic, uh, and you cut that out and you wrote your three favourite stories on it. And here They're was the, the ones here that, was the that survived, and the ones that were at the bottom of the poll um, were chopped. Yeah. Now, the other thing I remember from the 70s, and you mentioned the streets of San Francisco, but also this is obviously a New York story, but those sort of images of American cities were very sort of alluring to um, the rather sort of drab and austere 1970s for us British kids. Tell us a little bit about how John Cooper depicts the streets of New York in this one. Yeah, well, as Wagner says in his introduction, it is John Cooper's artwork that is the star of the show. Because it's, in my opinion, it's the best stuff he, he ever did. I know a lot of people would, would, would say it was Johnny Red, but I, I personally would vote for this one. Um, it, it is deliciously detailed. He's, he's drawn in a, a gritty style, um, quite a bit of line work, and also a very heavy use of blacks. But he will also juxtapose that heavy use of blacks with white space. And sometimes forms are suggested by not being drawn. There's just empty white silhouettes. Um, at that and the reader kind of uses the imag- their imagination to fill in the detail. So um, that absolutely that absolutely appealed to me when I was a, when I was a kid. And the other thing that I really like, the two things that I really like about it is they would always open the, the story with a large one third page establishing shot. And those shots absolutely do they just ooze the grime and the smell and the heat of New York. You know, these these are drawings that a good a good drawing or a good photograph shouldn't always be a static image. You know, you should be able to see motion in a drawing in a good drawing. You should be able to hear things in a good drawing or a good photograph. And it's certainly got that effect. And the other thing I would I would add is the fact that because they're like sometimes twelve panels on a page, you're getting very good storytelling from John Cooper in a style now that's been, I feel, has been lost in modern comics. Sometimes I have to, you know, keep checking where I am in the story. These are drawn in a very clear style that take you from one panel to the next to the next. And there are several sequences that will work without any dialogue. If you, if you don't, if you just look at the pictures, uh, there's one that starts with a, um, an owner of a, a cheap hotel. Unfortunately, a thug... Uh, comes in, assassinates him, then walks up the stairs because he wants a hotel room to carry out an assassination from. That whole sequence, you don't need any dialogue. It, it can be done just by the pictures. Right. Yeah. And there's, and there's several, several, several instances of that. There's another one where uh, I'm not sure. It might be that contract is taken out on McBain and he's given you've got 12 hours to live or something and there's a, a repetitive use of a clock in the story and again that was quite a nice little storytelling device you know i'd like to see more of that come back to modern comics to be honest right i mean john cooper is you know his superlative doing these weekly 
I guess four pages a week for this, but just knocking it out of the park all the way. Uh, you know, Central Park in some some instances, of course. Um, and it is very New York, isn't it? There's Times Square, there's pool halls. Uh, we see yeah. those uh, walk-up stoops that the gangs sit on and sewers, yeah. yellow cabs, uh-huh. diners, and as you say, seedy hotel rooms. It's very sort of 1970s New York, isn't it? Yeah, and the amazing thing was that Cooper never visited New York. Oh, really? He said it was all it was all based in an interview. He said it was all based on the TV shows. Fantastic. Yeah. And it just it just looks like you know it's definitely New York. It's really got that flavour to it. And as he says, you say you've got those opening one third of the page, sort of on the first page, and then he crams a lot of panels in and tells a lot of story. And he's very good at movement and action. I found. Yeah, uh, characters flying out of the panel when they're being punched by McBain. Um, yeah, and cars and helicopters and everything exploding. Yeah, and if if you compare that, there was almost that was almost a visual style with comic book artists of that era. Because if you look at the other uh, big names of that era, uh, Frank Bellamy, Mike Noble, Martin Asbury, you know they would compose pages in a similar way using circles using. Um, jagged panel edges, you know, throwing characters out of the out of the, the picture frame. You know, it was kind of a you know, on the, you know, it was it was a style that was deployed by the artists of that of that time. Right. Yes. I mean, he breaks the panel borders with the action quite yeah. a lot, doesn't he? Um, yeah. I'm looking at a page where McBain's swinging a, a baseball bat, and it sort of comes down in the next panel below him, and so on. Um, yeah. yeah, and there's chains, goodness, there's all sorts of stuff. Oh, those those stevedore hooks, hooks they use down at the docks for bales. He has a fight with those at one point. Yeah, yeah, it's tough and gritty stuff. And John Cooper's art, lovely. I mean, black and white throughout. Although there is a, as you say, the annual story at the at the end is in color, um, mm-hmm. which is fairly, I think, fairly standard 1970s annual covering. It's not not outstanding, is it? Yeah, yeah. Well, they had to obviously make um, allowances for the paper stock that it was yes. on, and generally, it was it was pretty pulpy paper that the annuals at that time were printed on. So it looks to me like that's you know it's been been drawn and coloured for that to be to be uh, reflected on on that type of material. And during the, another thing that on that on that score was that during this run of Valiant, it amalgamated with Vulcan oh, right. for a few weeks. And what happened was that uh, it only only happened for about four weeks and it kept the name Valiant and Vulcan for quite a while. But for about four weeks, what there was, there was a Vulcan micro comic in the centre. Right. And there were two two comic book pages per page. And again, you were invited to cut out the middle eight pages, fold them in two, and you had a 16-page micro comic. And one of the strips that they featured was uh, Don Lawrence's Trigon Empire. Oh, right. So you had this gorgeous, full-colour painted artwork being printed on really crummy newsprint, uh, which perhaps wasn't the best choice. I mean, that's another thing we can say about Cooper's artwork. That use of the heavy blacks, the gritty line work, and the white space, I mean, it does suit the printing process of newsprint comics perfectly. Yes. Yes, you can. Yeah, I mean, I this volume obviously is printed on very nice paper. It's all very shiny and nice and sharp, but you can see that it was suited for that sort of bog paper type uh, reproduction with the black inks and the shading and so on. Yeah. 
It's tremendous stuff throughout by John Cooper. I mean, he'd go on to do some Mac one, some Dread. He did, uh, the, uh, I think, one of the Abelard Snar, um, Abelard Snaz stories for 2000 AD. But this is his. Uh, this is this volume is really all about him, isn't it? It's one of his best works. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, and it's great that it's it's a volume. You know, it's it's written all by the same person and it's drawn all by the same person. So it gives it a really good, complete feel. You know, and we do like that in a volume, don't we? When we get, you know, yeah, yeah it's the one team throughout. Um, yeah. And he's telling, as you say, he's telling all these stories. Um, there's a couple of continuing stories. I like the one where McBain is up against the Jigsaw Killer, uh, yeah. which goes on for a couple of issues. I think there's a couple of two- or three-part stories, aren't there, in this volume? Yeah. I think they're all two. I don't think he went to a three-parter, but I also liked um, uh, the Jigsaw Killer. I did actually feel that he, the Jigsaw Killer very much had the feel of uh, Scorpio from the first Dirty Harry yes, film. Yes, I think he is, isn't he? I think it, it is a little bit of an acknowledgement uh, to it. And, you know, he's a, he's a killer, he's a mysterious assassin, leaves clues for the cops... You know, he's traced down and he's, uh, you know, dispatched off in a suitly grisly style by McBain at the very end. And he's got a scarred so, face as well, hasn't he? Um, yeah. Because um, I did wonder whether that actually, pre- you know, this precedes the uh, Marvel Comics character, um, one of Punisher's rogues gallery, I think, Jigsaw, who's also got the scarred right. face. But anyway, so yeah, the Jigsaw Killer was great. And like yourself, I did think it was a nod to Scorpio from the first Dirty Harry, yeah. which I guess in turn was a nod to the Zodiac Killer. Yeah. Yeah, okay, great. The other one I noticed, um, which I think I sent you an email about, was that there's an episode that starts with Jack McBain in a New York diner when mm. a couple of no good nicks, as it were, come in and start throwing their weight around. And then, of course, in typical one-eyed Jack fashion, he uses some of the uh, the actual coffee machine to sort of overpower them. And yeah. it, it struck me as being quite similar to what John Wagner would write, I guess, about 20 years later when he did A History of Violence. Yeah, you, you made the connection there for me. Um, I remember when I read that strip, I thought actually it was more like uh, Pulp Fiction, to be honest, and the diner sequence oh, right, yes. from that. I very much doubt that Pulp Fiction was <laughs> was inspired by uh, One-Eyed Jack, but that was a connection on that one that I made. Right. But um, I mean, there's there's a couple of other connections that I that I saw. The one uh, that, that did strike me when I reread reread the book was that McBain does goad uh, a villain. There's a villain. He's on the ground. He's got his gun in front of him. McBain goads him to go for his gun and again just like he does do to Scorpio in the Dirty Harry film and the villain decides to push his luck and try it and obviously that uh, meets with a grisly end again an acknowledgement to the Dirty Harry film but then in the final panel McBain's partner Willie Novak says uh, that was plain murder Jack and Jack turns around to him and says you might call it plain murder I call it justice and there's quite a famous one-page American underground strip by the underground cartoonist Spain, Manning. Some call it police brutality. He calls it justice. Right. And it's a, it's a one-pager. Again, it's the, he's taking off the fact that the tough cops were on TV and being revered as heroes. And Spain writes that, you know, these, these guys are not heroes. Um, and it just struck me as a nod 
to to that strip. And I think Wagner, he wasn't a great comics fan, but I think he did look at like the underground comics of of that time. And I I suspect there is a that is an actual connection. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting what you say because you know there is that question of is is One-Eyed Jack is he a hero, or is he uh, you know a reprehensible sort of uh, um, cop that's gone haywire? Whereas Willie Novak is trying to sort of rein him in all the time, or at least when Novak turns up. Yeah. Do you? I mean, you mentioned the world. You know, the, the America. What's it called? Team America World Police. Um, yeah. It has that at times. Has that slightly over the top. Um, black humour to it in a way, I guess. Um, yeah, but it's almost too it's too strange to take seriously, and we just have to just enjoy it as a seventies romp yeah. with wonderful art. Yeah, but that's us looking at it as adults. Yes, you know, it seemed completely real to me as an eleven-year-old kid, and there was no problem with the bad guys getting this. You know, <laughs> Jack getting his magnum out and dispatching the, the bad guys. Uh, you know. That was, you know, it was completely real, particularly helped by the by the artwork, which depicted New York so vividly. And there's no, I mean, there's no doubt that all the people that McBain does uh, punch, shoot, drive over, whatever, they're all the bad guys. I mean, it's quite clear that exactly. they are bad guys. Exactly. They're all yeah. and again, murderers and kidnappers and whatever, yeah. Yeah, and, and also uh, he's having a go at some people in authority as well. Yes. You know, they're not just straightforward... Hoods, there are, you know, it does uh, sometimes he is taking down uh, politicians, mayors, things like that. He's, he's, you know, he's, he's having a go at the, uh, at, you know, at the authorities as well. So with Valiant Comic, comic, the one that doesn't get mentioned from the 70s, do you see a sort of direct progression from what John Wagner did here? Uh, also maybe some of the stories from Battle, but then on to, of course, the most infamous comic of the 70s, Action, uh, mm. and then to 2008. Do you think this is this is one of the sort of like progenitors of those later comics? Absolutely. Uh, you know, you know, One-Eyed Jack could easily just be transported straight into Dredger from Action. Um, but, of course, the... the, the the most uh, obvious link will be the connection, you know, with Judge Dredd. Yes. Um, which this strip is very much, it's the lone cop up against the city full of crime. It's like, it's just like Dredd. You know, the New York City in these stories is a character in the story. You know, it's very much set in its environment. So uh, if we if we um, look, uh, Wagner is practising his terse dialogue style, Yes. Uh, there's not much wasted with. There's a couple of times where Wagner, the, the storytelling by John Cooper is so good. Actually, some words by Wagner aren't recalled. You know, you'll Cooper will make it clear that McBain has been sneaked up from behind, and you know, and then the bad guy will grab Jack, and Jack will say, "Oh, oh he sneaked up on me from behind." But you know, he, you don't need those words. Um, but yeah, it's a. I'd say it's well. Wagner himself says it was a clear prototype when they were uh, devising um, 2000 AD with Pat Mills. You know, he said the thing you you need for it is a tough cop character. So this this was the genesis of it. Yeah, and so you know, you've mentioned them. These are the progenitors of uh, of Dread, aren't they? McBain, yeah. Dredger, uh, Dirty Harry, I guess. Uh, obviously, the action comic strips and so on. Um, and you and your his last panel sign offs 
as written by John Wagner, you often get those sort of very early dread moments. As you mentioned, the one, you know, you call it murder, I call it justice. Um, yeah. There's something about, you know, you're going to learn a lesson, you'll learn it in a penitentiary, which, you know, yeah. we could translate to the cubes. Yeah, there's these sort of one panel sign offs yeah. at the end, which are very, those first sort of year or two of dread when he was always just signing off and saying, you know, it's the law. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and and some of the stories, you know, are, are, are prototype stories for trade. I mean, you know, we talked there about the um, the one about the rookie cop, and the police are saying Hell's Kitchen is too is too dangerous to send cops into, and Jack McBain saying no, the the crooks have got to respect the law. Well, that's the same as the very first uh, Judge Dredd story that got published. Yes, uh, White's Revenge, because you know they said it's too too dangerous. We can't send the judges in there. And Dredd turns around to the chief judge and says, uh, uh, who's going to respect us if we back down now? It's got to be one judge against the bad guys, you know? Yes, so it was. It's similar tropes. The very yeah. first Dredd story. And, of course, they also, I think they did it again later on with the, the punks gang, didn't they? Dredd going yeah. in alone with just a, a truck to gather up the bodies. Uh, um, yeah. yeah, that's right. And there are bits of dialogue as well. There's one where... Um, there's a couple of scenes actually when I read it and I thought that's pure Judge Dredd. There's one where Jack they're having the police morning police briefing in the room and Jack is late and the lieutenant's saying, Where is he? And of course Jack just storms in and said, Just caught this punk trying to rob a bank, you know, somebody book him and you know, just kind of throws him out the door nonchalantly. And I thought that's just pure pure dread, you know, never stops uh, arresting people. And there's another one where Jack needs to uh, get a, a motorcycle off a, off a hood to uh, chase the, chase some other bad guys. And they'll say, you can't, that's my motorbike, you can't take it. And Jack just immediately just shoves his magnum up his nose and says, listen, punk, you know, if you want to be breathing through a third nostril, you know, you'll give me that bike. So, um, again, another, another pure, pure dread moment. Because obviously, I mean, with Dredd's lawgiver here, McBain is, of course, he carries his forty-four Magnum, very dirty Harry, and uh, it's yeah. his dis, you know signature weapon. Although he does use uh, anything he can get his hands on when needs be. Um, okay, I also just quickly noticing as we go through that the logo, the title logo, changes quite frequently, doesn't it, to sort of fit in yeah. with the uh, the story. It starts off with the one we see on the cover but they sort of change through a number of different title logos as we go on. I don't know if that was one of the art editors who was changing it, presumably, or whether it was John Cooper. We don't know, obviously. All these things are lost to time, aren't they? I would suspect it would be the art yeah. editor. The The art editors were the people responsible for devising the logos. And another one, another kind of link to McBain and Dread is actually, if you look at the opening logo that they used for the first series of episodes it's very it's chunky you know blocky chunky lettering not dissimilar to the early judge dread logo yes in fact the one with the uh, little uh, uh, the famous thumb mark uh, inside yeah. it and you know if we want to go into fanboy territory you know you could even say you know is jack mcbain the great great grandfather of chief judge vargo yes. <laughs> so you know are these uh, you know were these uh, easter eggs that were being planted you know? the j in one-eyed jack is very much like that j on the start of those early judge dread logos isn't it yeah yeah, yeah. was it jan yeah. shepherd i think the art editor yeah i, I suspect it's jan shepherd and i suspect she's yeah. done both right yeah. oh well that's yeah. lovely connection 
Okay. Yeah. So tell us a little bit more about Valiant then after these stories, because at some point the great news for all readers did finally come for Valiant, I think, didn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, that was the end of Valiant. But again, this really makes the kind of book complete in itself because uh, Valiant was merged with Battle and they had to figure out how to get some of the Valiant strips into uh, to move over to Battle. And what, I mean, Captain Hurricane became uh, became the letters page editor of Battle, as I recall. Um, I think they finished Death Wish and Soldier Sharp. I don't think they made the transition. But the one that was very easy to do was obviously to take this tough cop character and transition him to a military setting. So what Wagner has to do in the final few episodes is got to come up with a storyline that allows Jack to get out of the police and into the military. And even rereading it as a, again, I don't want to give away spoilers, but it was quite a punch. The reason that uh, the motivation he gives McBain to do this was quite punchy and quite unusual, I would say, for a boys comic uh, of that time. Yeah. Um, uh, so towards the end, McBain is, quits the police, gets picked up by military. It, it's revealed in battle that he served a dictatorial duty in Vietnam and joins um, military intelligence. Uh, same kind of scenario that happened to Dredger from action. Um, you know, he was transferred across into the military quite easily. Um, but that that final, those final two strips really do pack, really did pack a punch with me, actually. Right. Yeah, yeah. And, he, and not only has he lost his eye in the first episode, he loses his finger in the last episode, doesn't he? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Just so the bad guys teach him a yes. lesson, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, fantastic stuff. And, of course, uh, along the way, as we said, we've had some New York uh, skylines, we've had some helicopters, we've had yellow cabs, we've had everything. It's just uh, pure New York on a page, isn't it? So would you read it as, you know, one of the forerunners of Dread, or would you read it for the John Cooper art if you're advising people to go back and look at it now? I would. I'm going to have to do that that horrible thing and say both. Um, I think both yeah. perfectly permissible. Yeah, yeah. I, certainly, John. If you, I mean, I would say to to anybody who's got a general interest in comics, I would say you know read this for just good solid storytelling. You know, compressed strips, um, plenty of story crammed into three or four pages. Good story, so, so, solid storytelling. You don't need to read all the words to follow to follow the storyline, the pictures will do it. At times, it, you know, it's almost, you know, Eis- well, Eisnerish, um, you know, in how solid the storytelling is. But certainly if, uh, if someone's a, you know, a dread, you know, a dread fan, then you would say, yeah, read this because this, you know, this is the prototype for what turned into Joe Dredd. And a number of these strips were reprinted in the early 2008 summer specials and they were introduced with the, with the strapline. I'm working off memory here, but it was something like before MC1, there was NYC. Before Judge Dredd, there was One-Eyed Jack. So even 2000 AD, the comic, clearly acknowledged that this was a forerunner of their lead character. And it's interesting that they Treasury chose this as its first volume to put out. And as you say, on the back page, mm. the back cover, they've got that strapline, haven't they? Before Judge Dredd, Jack McBain was the law. Yeah, absolutely. So there must be some, it must have, you know, they would have obviously chosen for the first volume, they'll want something that was commercially successful, uh, not too offbeat at the moment. They're going to they're gonna want something that they're confident is going to sell. So that would suggest, you know, there were quite a few people, um, you know, who'd remembered 
McBain from their childhood and, you know, we're happy to see the stories reprised. So we've got a nice package here. We've got a lovely glossy covered uh, paperback, nice paper stock inside. We've got a few Valiant covers at the back, which I think are fabulous. I noticed mm-hmm. one of them does indeed say Valiant and Vulcan. Yeah. But the covers that uh, One-Eyed Jack had, including the Jigsaw Killer um, and the sniper image of Jack in the uh, crosshairs, which makes up the front cover. As I've said, we've got a John Wagner introduction. It's all in all pretty good, isn't it? Yeah, I, I did. I, I didn't, certainly didn't feel short-changed. I would have liked the John Wagner introduction to have been longer, if I'm, if yeah. I'm honest. Probably Wagner would say, <laughs> knowing Wagner with his uh, fact that... Uh, I know he's American, but he's lived in Scottish for so long. So, well, if they, you know, I'll write you an introduction that's three times as long as they pay me three times as much. Um, um, it's a shame, you know, John Cooper wasn't there to contribute as well. That's possibly the, you know, the sad part Sadly of it. passed um, away think, a couple of years before yeah, this passed volume. passed away by this time. Out, it, yeah. yeah, it would have been good to have got a few words and him looking back um, on it or maybe even a very small article you know on the on the artwork would have been nice yeah. as well I mean it is actually you know thinking about it it's a sort of sad race against time with some of these creators that the treasury of British comics has now got uh, their work and I know they've a couple of times now they've not quite managed to get them before they sadly pass away I mean, obviously, you know, as we record, my episode about Misty has just come out, and the um, the famous sort of girls comic artist Shirley Bellwood, who passed away, and they want they were hoping to get her to write an introduction for one of the Misty collections. Uh, so yeah, it would have been right. nice to get John Cooper, um, but yeah, sadly he'd um, died two years before this. I should mention it's fifteen ninety nine on the two thousand eighty web store, web store, or nine ninety nine digital. And it is a lovely package. It was the first of the treasuries, as you say, and it sort of set set the standard for the others to come, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, and and of course they they stuck for the first few. I mean, well, they, did they do Marnie the Fox? Marnie the Fox has been out. The yeah, one, the next one. Yeah, quite a, quite a change of absolutely, pace. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes, completely different. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, from Dirty Harry to Watership yes. Down. So. Um, <laughs> Um, but yeah, but I mean, obviously, we've got some of the the great, you know, we've got Ken Reed coming through, you know, um, Leo Baxendale, you know, we've got some of the some of the big yes. names um, coming up, so that's that's good. So, favorite, uh, any favorite moments or stories in this collection that you haven't mentioned already, John? Well, I'm afraid I, I, they are the two, the two that I have uh, mentioned really is is the two that because they're the two that that I remembered from when I was a kid is is the the rookie cop story. Um, and and the uh, Donald Duck story right. are the two. They are the two. To me, they're the two standard. And also the ending. Um, the, like I said, the the way in which Wagner structures McBain to leave the police, move to the military. Um, very very impactful. Um, quite like the story about down on the dockyards, yeah. uh, where um, uh, Jack's got to take out a crooked dockyard gang. Thought that was a, a very good one. But I mean, the good thing is, I mean, quite honestly, they're all they're all good. To be honest, <laughs> you know, I don't think there's a there's not there's not one there. I think that I thought, oh, you know, that's a, a bit subpar. The, possibly because it was such a short run, you know, the, the standard is kept up across all the strips. Right. And I don't know if any of this artwork survives. I'm thinking it probably doesn't because when I searched on comic art fans, I didn't find. I found some John Cooper pieces from Battle, but I didn't find any One-Eyed Jack. Mm. But if if it did survive and we could afford it, what would be your grail pages from this volume? 
Yeah, I'm going to be I'm going to be repetitive. I'm probably going to take the second page of the Donald Duck story. Cool. Yep. Yeah, because it's just such a bizarre, bizarre page. Um, again, um, I, I would say after that, any of those opening pages with those great establishing shots. I've got the book open. There's one of a cop looking out at a crowd scene. It's just out onto New York from a an upstairs. Oh, that's right. Somebody about that's right. Somebody about to jump from a. Yes. Uh, again, they're, they're referencing a, a scene from a Dirty Harry film. Uh, there's somebody about to jump from a New York uh, from a hotel room, and Jack and a copper inside looking looking out into the crowd scene. And it's the the detail in the crowd there is uh, it certainly put plenty of people into the crowd. Um, but they're they're the ones that I would uh, that I would that I would take any of those any of those with the opening opening panels are to me the standout the standout pages. Fantastic. Okay, well, we'll grant you those. They become yours in the Grail page gallery. Um, okay. I've got, I again, like a title page. So I've chosen the one uh, which is about a third way into the book where um, a car pulls up outside the 94th precinct and one-eyed Jack is looking out the window and says that car's got a gun and somebody leans out the window and there's this sort of perspective shot. We then switch to inside the car looking back up at the steps of the precinct. Um, and it's just, you know, marvellous sort of action and there's a lot going on. It's very sort of dark and inky page. Plus it's got a one-eyed yeah. Jack logo, which I always like. So I'm going to take that page, I think. Um, okay, that's a good one to choose. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah, it's great stuff. So that was the first volume from the Treasury of British Comics and I think certainly the first time we've got to Valiant on this podcast uh, mm-hmm. and certainly an interesting part of British comics history. I very much hope we get Paco to be on. Well, Paco and Soldier Sharp, actually, as well. Are we getting Death Wish as well? Or... Is that not going to be the Eagle version? Ah, that right. seems to be quite popular. Again, similar thing. Is it a racing driver who survives? That's right, he, has a, he survives a big crash. Oh, we've had that one already, haven't we? Yes, that's, yeah. yes, that's right. Yes, and that's that's it, because he, he was handsome before and now he's disfigured, he doesn't cake. Again, he starts doing crazy things because he's lost his will to live and everything so that's right i remember the yeah. hideously scarred racing driver i've got that one here on the shelf as well yeah 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 but but maybe paco and uh, paco and shaco maybe would be uh, <laughs> i think a good good dual volume i think yeah those 70s killer animals that we were all so fond of yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah. Put, put, a, put a couple of uh, episodes of marley the fox in at the end just to calm everybody yes, down to bring everybody down yeah, yeah. But up yeah. until then, it's sort of gore, teeth and gore, as we loved back then, yeah. Uh, and uh, no-nonsense cops with big guns as well. So here we are, yeah. One-Eyed Jack. Thank you for picking it, John, and coming on. Thank you for getting in touch. Pleasure. Anything else you wanted to mention? Well, you know, you mentioned to me in an email, and I don't know if you want to talk about that, but obviously the police situation in America at the moment yes. is um, quite quite tricky. And you kind of asked me, did, you, did I feel that this kind of material might have had any influence? Or just, uh, you know, how does, does it feel comfortable reading this stuff now when there's so much terrible stuff going on? You know, the police have seemed to respond to accusations of brutality with even more brutality. Yeah. Uh, to be honest, uh, it, it didn't affect me. This is fiction. Yeah. It's children's fiction. Um, and as we've said before, it's so over the top um, that, it, that, it, that it's so unreal um, that... that you know, there's a slightly kind of like bizarre aspect to it. So 
I don't think so. I think the situation in that's happening in America at the moment is more. You know, I think the the people that are carrying it out, they've got problems other than than just reading comics. I think, quite honestly, I don't. Yeah, um, sure. Uh, you know, I don't. I don't think it's got really any bearing on it to be to, to be kind. You know, there's other so certainly those people are you know shaped by the society around them. But I think there's been bigger issues in their lives that have brought us to where we are now. Oh, certainly, yeah. I mean, much bigger issues yeah. than comics, as you say, seventies yeah. yeah. British comics. Yeah. yeah. I just felt yeah. I I got um, the 2080 artist PJ Holden has been doing his live sketches at weekends during lockdown. And I got a dread from him, which he sent me just this week. And, of course, as I opened the envelope and looked at it, I thought, actually, it's a funny time to be getting a picture of a fascist cop with a gun. Um, yeah. uh, although it will probably turn up in my charity raffle at Christmas time, so watch out for that. <laughs> um, I perhaps sort of got, you know, uh, Noam Chimpsky instead, which was my original idea. But there you go. It's an odd time, isn't it? Yeah, it is an odd time. It's time for reflection, and hopefully, change will come from it this time. Yes, absolutely. You know, we've we've been here before, but um, things do feel a little bit different this time around. Absolutely. Yeah. So, John, any guest projects that you wanted to mention uh, in this section of the show? Yeah, well, I know it's most of the people that uh, you have on the show uh, they do have a connection with comics, which I don't. Uh, just uh, just an avid reader. Um, uh, do do a little bit of promotional work from local theatre Stockport Garrick so you might want to give them a nod sure. um, there's, there's not much going on there at the moment because we're uh, uh, obviously we're under the restrictions of lockdown but I would just say to anybody listening in if you have got a local um, arts venue be it a theatre you know gig venue art gallery that you do frequent and you spend time there I would say if you can spare them you know, a small donation, I would encourage people to do that because most of these venues, you know, they are run on a knife edge and they really need people's support at this time to get through. Yes. So I would say, yeah. So let's let's support the uh, uh, the arts venues this time rather than the comics publishers. Absolutely, <laughs> yes. Yeah, I mean, yeah. as a political journalist and 2000 AD fan um, Ian Dunn said recently, we should be supporting the stuff that we want to be still there when all this is over. So, absolutely yeah. yeah yeah cool i will put that in the show notes john and thank you once Lovely. again for coming you know no, thank you for having me uh, good it's been fascinating to have a look at this slice of uh, mid-70s british comics which was um yeah. quite besotted with american cop stories uh and of course that lovely john cooper art throughout and thank you to everyone for listening to mega city book club uh, as ever find out everything at megacitybookclub.com but you'll also find the podcast on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, the 2080 forums and Spotify. And you can get in touch like John did by emailing me mcbcpodcast at gmail.com. Maybe there's a volume from the Treasury of British Comics that hasn't been covered yet or you'd like to come on and talk about. So get in touch. And that'll do us. Until next time on Mega City Book Club, when we're passing judgment on another great 2000 AD book, it's goodbye from me and... It's goodbye from me. Wow.